Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to Revelators. I know it's been a while. Uh, it's springtime, it's March, and uh, we're really excited uh, with who we have uh, on our podcast. And life is busy. You can hear it on both of our sides, but um, nevertheless, we're really thankful. Uh, before we get started, unfortunately, just me, it's just Andrew that's here. Uh, Jay Rich, Tafoy, and Eric are all busy doing school and doing work and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, but I will serve as a surrogate for uh, all of them. Uh, but we do have a special guest on here, which is really exciting. Uh, Jenny Yang from World Relief uh, is with us. Uh, she is, and help me make sure I get this right, you're the Vice President for Advocacy for World Relief? Yes, that's correct, yep. Awesome, awesome. Well, uh, we can just kind of get started. Um, can you just tell us kind of like your story um, with kind of World Relief and I know it's an evangelical association, so I'm pretty sure that's also tied to your faith as well. Um, so could you just spend us some time of kind of talking about your background and all that stuff? Sure. Um, so I've actually been at World Belief for about 12 years, which means I'm considered a veteran at this organization. And uh, I originally uh, found out about World Belief because I went to school in Baltimore, which is where the organization is headquartered. And um, after I graduated from college in Baltimore, I um, had some friends actually that worked at World Belief. And um, they told me that I should consider working at the organization because um, it it's an organization that empowers local churches all around the world to serve wow. the vulnerable. Um, and I think the mission of World Relief is really unique and what distinguishes World Relief from any other uh, global relief and development organization is that our aim is to, um, is to empower local churches to do the work and not necessarily put World Relief at the center of this work. And so um, a lot of organizations use the local church as a vehicle for delivering services. Um, but we believe that it's the foundation for community transformation wow. um, just around the world, but even in the United States of America um, and its work with, with refugees and immigrants. So um, I actually, um, after school, wanted to work with refugees. Um, I always had an interest in that topic and mm -hmm. um, uh, had some experience studying that and interning in college um, with that, that uh, theme. And so when I found out that World Relief um, actually had a refugee program, that's what really excited me. And I actually um, started working in the refugee program, managing a World Relief's caseload of refugees before their arrival and working with the State Department um, on who these refugees were and then communicating that information to our network of 27 U.S. offices. Um, but then I was always doing advocacy on the side. And so I was always uh, writing letters and researching information about different refugee groups and compiling that into um, advocacy um, actions with the U.S. government. Um, and so uh, two years into that job, when my boss actually opened up the door for us to, um, uh, to actually to hire someone full-time for advocacy. And so I applied for that position, got it. And that's what I've been doing for the past 10 years. Wow. Uh, but a lot of, um, you know, my drive for advocacy and policy work really comes from my experiences in um, living overseas and in the U.S. because um, I remember when I was a college student in Spain, I was riding the subway and I saw a young African mother and her child sitting on the subway and these young Spanish teenagers came on the train and they started graffiti on the walls 
in Spanish, get out of my country, black people. And um, I was so upset that that had happened. And right when I was gonna say something, they got off the train. And you know, I looked at this young mother and her child and I just thought to myself, you know, they must feel so you know, humiliated or just feel really um, um, discriminated against in that situation. And what really bothered me about that wasn't, was the fact that it actually happened, but what also really bothered me was the fact that no one actually said anything um, to these Spanish teenagers. And then I got, you know, boiling mad because I was like, of all people, I mean, I'm not even here as, as a Spanish person. Like, I'm here as a student. And none of the Spaniards in that car said anything. And it just really upset me. And so um, I actually uh, volunteered that summer at a, an organization called SOS Racismo, which basically combats racism in Spain and in Europe, and then also um, at the UN. and basically trying to understand how their asylum system works and how they grant protection to people who are fleeing persecution and um, and and actually looking for economic opportunity in Spain. And so that's a little bit of what, what led to me then coming back to the States and realizing that I wanted to expand on that work and work with refugees directly. And so I didn't actually know World Relief worked with refugees. I thought that they only did international relief and development work. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I found out that they, um, half of our programs and half of World Relief's um, presence and budget really is actually from the U.S. programs. And so in the U.S., we, we settle refugees, we serve immigrants, and we also in certain offices serve victims of human trafficking. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a complement to the work we do overseas, mostly in Africa and Asia, um, where we work through local churches there to meet the tangible needs of, of their neighbors. Wow. wow, that's, that's incredible. incredible. Wow. <laughs> yes. You do a lot. So that's, that's, yeah. awesome. that's awesome. Um, I want to uh, ask you kind of a little bit more about your story. Uh, I was researching you a couple couple months ago when we were looking at people to uh, have on the, the podcast, and you had mentioned a little bit about your story uh, and just like your family. Um, and I don't want to make sure. I want to make sure I get this correct. Is your family from South Korea? Is that correct? Yeah. So um, um, my parents are from South Korea, and so my dad actually um, was orphaned there during the Korean War, um, and then um, he met my mom in Korea. They both immigrated to Philly, um, and then it's in Philly where uh, my older brother was born and where I was born. So. We're both, you know, U.S. citizens by birth, born and raised in this country. Mm -hmm. um, but my family always had ties back to Korea. At least my mom did because she has a larger family, whereas my dad um, didn't have any family. And in fact, since he immigrated to the U.S., he didn't actually go back to Korea for over 30 years because wow. he, like, did not. Um, I mean, his his childhood was all about war and conflict, and um, his, he lost both of his parents at a very young age. Um, so that really shaped his, his story. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. So you probably have a pretty like, closer, um, just like with the conversation in the political climate on, you know, the issue of immigration. Uh, you can probably have more personal ties to it than, you know, for me, I don't really have like any, at least closer family um, that is familiar with that. A particular struggle and so um, yeah thank you so much for the work that you do uh, I want to talk about um, obviously this executive order which I'm mm -hmm. sure 
you know like the back of my hand. Um, and it's been, you know, revised right now. Um, but what has been kind of your thoughts on the executive order? Um, and, and obviously things have been changed, but as far as your thoughts on it and then kind of what you've been able to do from your position um, in continuing to uh, advocate for uh, refugees uh, and immigrants. Sure. So, uh, you know, World Relief has a really rich history of serving refugees, and it really started in the 1980s when, uh, when the Vietnam War was happening, and Ronald Reagan at that time realized that if we're trying to fight communism abroad, then, um, you know, one of the, the signs, the moral, um, I, guess, I guess, beacons that we can shine around the world is by us accepting the very people whom uh, were fleeing, um, who were fleeing the, the persecution from some of these communist regimes. So it was actually under President Reagan that we accepted um, in the early 1980s over 200,000 refugees in a year. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if you know any Vietnamese people in the U.S., a lot of them actually were um, either refugees themselves or were the descendants of refugees who initially came over during that wave. Um, and so this program is not just a humanitarian program, but it really is a program that's run by the Department of State um, as a way to promote our national security interests abroad. And so it was in the 90s, um, in the 80s, that we resettled Vietnamese refugees. And then since that time, we resettled um, over 3 million refugees, actually, since that time. And at World Relief, we resettled about 270,000 of those 3 million refugees. So it's a, huge, it's a pretty big number. Um, but when you look break it down by year, um, it's noteworthy to, to know that um, like, for example, last year, uh, the U.S. resettled close to 85,000 refugees, and um, that, that number represents less than half of 1% of the world's refugees. So Good. we think that 85,000 is a large number, but it actually is a small fraction of the 20 million refugees that are around the world. Um, and if you look at the 85,000 number, it is such a small number compared to the greater U.S. population. So um, the total number of the 85,000 makes up um, that year made up less than or made up about 0.003% of our population. So it just goes to show you that this is a, a very small number, but they've borne the disproportionate impact of attention because um, you know, there are refugees that are coming from many parts of the world um, that are in conflict and that are suffering from war. And so over the past several years, um, but all presidents since 1980 have really administered the program as um, in partnership with organizations like World Relief, knowing that uh, oftentimes when the refugees come, they are only able to really succeed and integrate well if they're um, being welcomed by local communities. And so... Um, so uh, last year I mentioned we resettled 85,000 refugees as in the U.S. Um, and so this year our um, aim was to resettle 110,000 refugees. So it's a little bit of an increase from the 85,000, but it's commensurate with um, the the goals that the president um, that President Obama wanted to set um, for a global humanitarian response. Um, and because the U.S. resettles the greatest number of refugees in the world even though it's a smaller um, percentage per capita of our population than other countries. Um, he really set the bar pretty high to challenge other communities to actually do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, with the executive order, um, it was really startling to us because when President Trump issued the executive order at the end of January, um, it was a really uh, large targeting of 
people that we thought were extremely vulnerable and people who um, we have come to know at World Relief um, who are just, you know, freedom loving um, community serving individuals. Um, and so initially in that executive order, he pretty much banned um, all Syrians from coming to the country indefinitely. Um, and so um, even though Syrians made up the second nas largest nationality of refugees that came into the U.S. program last year, um, they were banned from the program. He also originally actually had a preference for religious minorities. Mm -hmm. And so he said that, you know, if you're a religious minority, you can come to the refugee program. And then he also have the 110,000 uh, ceiling to about 50,000 um, and then suspended the program for 120 days. Now that order uh, was met with legal action because there were several groups that thought that that um, executive action couldn't hold legal muster. And mm -hmm. um, in a decision by um, panel of judges, they they concurred in a three zero decision that um, parts of executive order were unconstitutional um, and that um, parts of the order were stayed, pretty much saying that um, it's not effective anymore. And so uh, the president on March 6th pretty much reissued an executive order in which he basically said that um, he's going to um, alter some of the, the, the legal challenges, but then the intent of the executive order was still going to be the same. So um, one of the things we noticed, at least in the refugee part of the executive order, was that um, he didn't ban Syrians anymore. And so Syrians were going to be con considered like any other nationality. Um, and that he, ex he didn't include a religious minority preference anymore because that was what uh, was legally challenged before as well. Um, but there are two things that, that still remain that didn't change, which was the fact that um, he still have the number of refugee um, arrivals from 110 to about 50,000 a year. Um, and then he still suspended the program for 120 days. Now, these are probably the most significant um, alterations to the program because at a time when we're seeing the worst migration crisis in history, um, where there's over 20 million refugees, um, you know, he's basically having the commitment that was previously made to 50,000. Um, and the fact that we're suspending the program for four months basically um, kind of uh, undermines the purpose of the program, which is to save lives. And we have many, many cases in which refugees either have urgent medical conditions or are living as in really precarious situations where their safety is at risk that are trying to come into the U.S., um, and a four-month suspension um, really puts a lot of their lives at risk. And yeah. so um, I'll just give you one example. So this past weekend, um, we had an Afghan special immigrant visa come in. And Afghanistan was actually not on the original list of seven countries that were banned from coming to the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a father and a mother and three of their children, um, ages seven, six, and eight months old. Um, and when they arrived to the airport, our office in Garden Grove, California, was waiting for them, and they were not released by Customs and Border Patrol. And so um, we didn't know for what reason, but then they were detained. And so um, because they were detained at the airport for, um, for many, many hours, um, we had to uh, work with some pro bono attorneys to release these cases. Um, but for them to be released, they actually were released into detention facilities, which is pretty much like a jail. Um, and so the, the father went to one place, and then the mother and their three children went to another detention facility. Um, even though they were coming legally on a visa and had been fully vetted by our U.S. government. Um, and we actually had to have an attorney uh, intervene because 
um, they were actually going to send the mother and children to a detention center in Texas, even though they were originally arriving to California. Wow. Um, and so we actually, um, so that happened on Saturday. Um, and then it wasn't until Monday that we actually had this family released. Um, and so um, they were in jail for about two days, even though this, the man, the whole reason why he came into the U.S. was because he had worked for a U.S. government for 10 years. Um, and actually because um, the Taliban knew that he was working for U.S. government, um, he was persecuted. He actually received verbal death threats. Um, he received threats against his life and that of his family. And so he applied to be a special immigrant um, back in 2015. And then it wasn't two years later that he's actually finally coming to the U.S. So, um, and the fact that, you know, this is someone who's helped our U.S. troops for, you know, over a decade of his life, yeah. was persecuted because of it, and now comes to the U.S. and is thrown in jail, separated from his family for two days. It's just, it's so un-American. Um, and it means that the implementation of this order is really far-reaching um, and is really unpredictable. So, and there's a lot of things that we, you know, are concerned about and that we really need to, continue to keep our government accountable for so that these things don't don't happen again yeah, yeah. That, is, that is that is a lot that's going on and you guys are doing awesome work and kind of playing that role um of of you know advocating you know for these issues to the government and then also serving as a uh a, a really a relief to um, a lot of organizations and a lot of people that are coming from, you know, places from all over the world uh, just to get here in America. I want to talk about um, kind of two, two things and pretty intertwined. Number one, what has been the church's, um, you can take that evangelical church or just the, the believer, the body of Christ, what has been uh, the, the uh, reaction or lack thereof uh, towards uh, this ban, um, and then could you give us, you know, a theology of loving a stranger, of 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 loving immigrant, of accepting, like what biblically, um, why should we as Christians uh, take this so seriously? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, there's been a wide-ranging um, response to um, to this executive order. Um, Pew Research. Uh, actually did a poll where they found that 75% of white evangelicals support um, their, the ban. And, um, you know, it's interesting about that poll because, you know, first they only surveyed white evangelicals. They didn't survey black, Latino, or Asian, or Native mm -hmm. American evangelicals. Um, and so I think that's a little bit skewed. But also when you look at the way they did the survey, um, they only asked two questions about the ban out of over 30 questions. Um, and their representative sample of evangelicals, of white evangelicals, were limited to, I think, six to eight denominations or something like that. So, um, so I think the methodology was, I think, was a little bit interesting. Um, but I think the fact that it is 75% um, means that, you know, there's a lot of work to do um, for churches to actually be aware of who these refugees are and how the program actually works. And, um, you know, I was in a church in the middle of Ohio a couple of weeks ago where a woman um, came up to me afterwards. And uh, actually before I spoke, the person that invited me said, 
And you have to be aware that um, this is literally Amish country. So I was driving and I was um, hitting traffic with buggies that were on the road from Amish, you know, community members that are, you know, don't drive cars. Mm -hmm. um, so I, and then this is a church that's, you know, a Mennonite church. And, and the volunteer said to me, he's like, you know, you should know that most of the people are Trump supporters and they, they watch Fox News. And if when you watch Fox News, a lot of their angle about the refugee crisis is really coming from um, um, kind of, I would say, disproportionate or overblown exaggerations of who these individuals are. Mm -hmm. um, so after I spoke at this church, a woman came up to me and she said, um, you know, I, I was watching on Fox News that, you know, in Europe, they're having a lot of issues with refugees. And, um, you know, I think that's going to happen in the U.S. And I, I told her, well, what's happening in Europe is totally different than what's happening in the U.S., because in Europe, a lot of individuals are coming through without being vetted. But in the U.S., we select the people who are going to come, and then we do the vetting, and they can't come in unless they've been vetted. Um, and then there was also a concern she expressed about uh, Muslims and them implementing Sharia law in the U.S. And what I said was, well, um, you know, especially as followers of Christ, um, even if there's people who are of a different religion, I think the gospel is powerful enough and us living into the gospel effective enough where um, if we live into the values that Jesus teaches us in the Bible, then you know we have an opportunity to win people over for Christ um, without necessarily restricting people's religious freedom or saying that they shouldn't come here. Because um, yes, I think as a Christian, there's a certain way to feel about things. And as American, there's as well, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, um, that we shouldn't be welcoming people of, of other faiths. Um, and so that conversation was really eye-opening because it, it made me realize that, you know, there is so much misinformation out there and it's not that people are, are mal um, they have bad intentions or wrong motivations. It's just when you're in a community where you don't know any refugees or if you've never met a refugee um, and where you're getting constant um, information about, um, about, you know, a lot of fear about what these refugees are doing and how harmful they are, of course, they're going to have a certain level of fear. Um, so I think it's really important to get the right information out there. Um, but secondly, um, uh, I think as Christians, we're really um, called to see what God is doing through the migration of people. And when you actually read from Genesis to Revelation, you see that almost every single major biblical character was an immigrant. Um, from Abraham, who was called to leave his homeland, to Ruth, who was a Moabite woman who followed her mother-in-law and was a migrant farm worker, when she was noticed by Boaz to, mm -hmm. um, to Jesus. I mean, he was probably, you know, the, the greatest refugee of all because he had to flee King Herod um, with his mom and dad into Egypt. Um, and Mary and Joseph did this to save Jesus' life. Um, so we see throughout scripture how migration is being used and how God oftentimes uses people's immigrant experience to actually um, to demonstrate his purposes for their lives and for the world. And, um, and so not only do you see people who are immigrants in the Bible, but you also see um, the Old Testament and New Testament um, littered with verses about why um, following God and loving God um, means that we're to, to welcome the stranger amongst us. Um, so for example, like in Deuteronomy 10, it says, he enacts justice for orphans and widows and he loves the immigrants. Um, this means that you must also love immigrants. Um, and he specifically connects immigrants with orphans and widows as people who are particularly vulnerable because these are people who didn't actually have a community or even a family to support them in their sustenance. 
Um, and so you see in Malachi 3, 5, it says, um, he's going to be, I will be quick to testify against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. Um, or in Psalm 146, it says, the Lord watches over the alien, disdains the fatherless and the widow. And so you can see these vulnerable people groups constantly tied together. Um, but what you also see in the New Testament is that um, this idea of hospitality is philozenia, or the love of a stranger, literally, in Greek. Um, and philozenia, as the Bible talks about, is the opposite of xenophobia, the fear of strangers. And in Hebrews 13.2, it says, um, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it, which basically means that we have an incredible opportunity through welcoming the stranger to actually um, be changed ourselves and to learn from those stories. Um, and a biblical hospitality is different than a Martha Stewart hospitality or even Southern hospitality. Mm -hmm. Those are all great things, but the Bible commands us to go further than that. It commands us that the table of God shouldn't just be made up of our friends and family, but it should really be made up of those who are on the margins. And, um, and, and you see this idea in Matthew 25 where Jesus says, I was a stranger and you invited me in. Um, I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting that, that uh, scripture and passage, because, because Matt, uh, when Jesus talks about this, he's saying, I was a stranger and you invited me in because he literally was a stranger and no one invited him in. And he, um, uh, he was hungry and thirsty and um, on the margins and, um, you know, persecuted at that time. And, so when he's saying, you know, when we do for the least of these, uh, we're actually doing it unto Jesus. It's because Jesus embodied all of those things when he was walking here on earth. And so I think we have an incredible um, opportunity um, to not be fearful of the people that are different than us or make us feel uncomfortable, but to actually live into that discomfort, um, to actually live out the gospel and what the gospel actually means, which is... Um, a message for people of all nations and from all cultures and all religions. Yeah. And, um, you know, if we really believe in the great commission, like it says in Matthew 28, um, then, you know, we have a mission opportunity without ever leaving our own backyards. And so, yeah. um, I think, you know, we have to understand that the movement of people I believe is, um, God ordained that it says actually in Acts 17 that he determined the times, set for them in the exact places where they should live. And God did this so that men could perhaps seek him and, and reach out for him and find him, which means that, you know, oftentimes um, I think people are moving so that they can be in places where, the, where they will encounter the church and followers of Christ for the first time. And actually um, a lot of churches that I work with refugees are seeing, you know, revival and, and people, you know, becoming Christians in large numbers. And um, like, so for example, there's a church in Nashville that uh, was working with Bhutanese refugees who are predominantly Buddhist community. And when they initially started coming in as refugees, they, this church in Nashville showed them the Jesus video. And within a one week in service, a few weeks after that, um, they baptized over 70 Bhutanese believers um, in that one service. And so it just goes to show you that um, what I like to say is, 
you know, refugees are not just changing the face of our country, they're changing the face of the church. Um, and they're literally transforming Christianity. And it's not just in the U.S. Yeah, it's like in the Middle East and Asian Africa, if the church is will, willing to welcome these individuals, many of them who are um, coming from places where they're being persecuted, um, we have an opportunity to live out what the gospel teaches us. So I really, I think the challenge is addressing the misinformation and for followers of Christ to understand the theology of why people are migrating and then to step into the opportunity and to actually live out the gospel and share the gospel um, to people who have never heard it before. Yeah. Wow. That was, that was everything that I was thinking in my head and you just like kept naming them and then more. And more. <laughs> this is, wow. We have everything that you need right now. <laughs> this awesome. Um, so, uh, lastly, um, I just want to ask, you know, a lot of people hear about this, this crisis and it's so big, the magnitude, the scale, you know, 20 million people uh, being displaced and, you know, from the looks of things, it, it looks like there's going to be many, many more. Um, but from, you know, a local, you know, perspective, um, and, and, you know, just from where people are at, you're listening, uh, what can we do, you know, who may not be able to go and work for, you know, World Relief or may not be able to, you know, go and travel and go to these places and serve, but what can we do from our local kind of everyday perspective to uh, love on the immigrant and not just share the gospel, but be the gospel uh, in the midst of this refugee crisis? Sure. Well, I think, you know, people have different gifts and different callings in their lives and, and it really is, you know, you're not called to do everything, but I think you are called to do one thing. And, you know, it can be um, as simple as if um, you're an artist and you do a lot of paintings um, and you use your art to kind of raise awareness about the human condition, then, um, you know, drawing or doing artwork around the refugees and their stories. Um, or even if you don't do that, using your art and um, when, if you sell it, using the proceeds to donate that to nonprofit organizations that are helping refugees around the world. Um, or if, you know, you're a stay-at-home mom and, you know, your responsibility is to raise your children, um, you know, use your role as a mom to talk to your kids about refugees and uh, watch films with them that talk about the refugee crisis and read books with them that demonstrate um, the diversity of our world and, um, and, you know, different cultures and foods and languages and why that's such a huge um, blessing to us and um, so that's you know something else you can do but you know if you're a college student and you have a lot of time um, I know you have to study too but if you have time and resources and and because you're so connected to people of your age um, and at your own school um, I really would urge you to use the campus um, environment to to talk about the refugee crisis and so if you go to a christian school for example and you have chapels every week or every day um ask your chapel person to have a speaker or um or a refugee themselves share their story um, from the main stage to have that educate the people at that school um or um have you know blow up a picture of a, a letter or a petition and get as many people to sign on to as possible um, so that it, you can um, raise your voice that way through those signatures and deliver that poster to your local member of Congress. Um, and at World Relief, actually specifically for college students, um, if you are a college student and want to get updates about how you can engage with refugees and advocacy, um, if you text 
411 and the word refugee. Um, so again, it's 41411 and the word refugee. It's not refugees, um, plural, it's refugee singular. Um, okay. If you text that word, um, you'll get signed up to our email listserv in which we're updating people regularly about some of the things that they can do. Um, but, you know, if you're in a community, um, most uh, 48 states in the U.S. resettle refugees. I think it's Wyoming and maybe North or South Dakota that don't receive any ref refugees. But if you're in any other state, you're getting refugees into your state. And so um, work with your uh, local resettlement agency and um, uh, get them to um, part have you partner with a refugee. Um, and sign up to either, you know, pick a refugee up at the airport or tutor them or just get to know them on a weekly basis. Um, there's a lot of things you can do with the refugees that are either coming in or already here. Um, and so um, I think, you know, instead of thinking you have to do everything um, and you have to always, you know, do certain things, um, I think it's important that you see where you are and where you've been, what you've been given and your giftings and callings and really using those things um, to creatively think about how you can serve refugees. So um, if you go to World Belief, um, actually we have a lot of information about how local churches can engage with us. Um, and if you go to worldbelief.org slash advocate, uh, there's a lot of your information there. Um, even a toolkit, an advocacy toolkit we created um, that you can use to actually um, mobilize your campuses and your communities in support of refugees as well. Wow, that's amazing. Um, that's, thank you so much. It's really practical ways that um, we can, can, you know, get involved from just a local uh, perspective. Um, is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know? Um, I know that you wrote a book. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, so I um, co-authored a book with Matthew Sorens a few years ago. Um, actually not a few years ago, it was in 2009, so it was um, about eight years ago, but um, we uh, basically wanted to uh, change the conversation within the Christian community around immigrants and refugees, most specifically immigrants, um, and in particular undocumented immigrants. And so uh, we wrote that book and it's really um, created and opened the door uh, for us to have a lot of conversations with churches around around immigrants. Um, and then the other uh, book that I would recommend, and that book is called Welcoming the Stranger, and you can buy it online on, on Amazon. Um, but the other book that um, I didn't write, but my colleagues did, um, Matthew Sorens and then Stephen Bowman, who used to be with World Relief, and Isam Smear, is called Seeking Refuge. Um, and Seeking Refuge is a book that talks specifically about a Christian response to the refugee crisis. Um, and that came out last year. Um, and so that book has really been instrumental in changing people's thinking around the refugee conversation. And so if you're really interested in refugees, I would pick up Seeking Refuge. If you're really interested in the broader immigration debate, um, I would pick up like Welcome the Stranger. Um, and both of those are available on Amazon. And again, um, go to World Relief's website, worldrelief.org to get more information. Um, and if you're specifically interested in advocacy, go to worldrelief.org slash advocate. Uh, you can sign up to get our, our newsletters, um, and then you'll find a lot of um, information on there about things you can do. Great. Um, and you're on social media. Um, yes. Twitter, 
the, I don't know if you do Instagram or whatever. And so if you could just shout out your handles, uh, we'll probably have the them as well in the description of the episode. But just so yeah. stay up to date with you. And if World Relief also has uh, those as well, um, just send our listeners know. Yeah, so World Beliefs, um, all of the social media handles are pretty much World Belief. So at World Belief for Twitter, World Belief for Instagram, and then Facebook, you can find World Belief on Facebook. Uh, for myself, um, I actually have a personal website that I just created. If you go to uh, Jenny H. Yang, so Jenny with a Y, H-Y-A-N-G dot com, um, you'll actually see my a list of my speaking and um, schedule and then um, other activities and downloads that you can um, access through my website. Um, I'm also available on Twitter, Jenny Yang WR. Uh, again, it's Jenny Yang WR. And then I'm on Instagram, Jenny Yang 318. Um, but it's like all pictures of my baby. <laughs> so if you want pictures of a really cute one and a half year old, you can totally add me. Um, and then on, I'm on Facebook as well. So I have a public profile page as well as a personal page, but you can friend me on either. And um, that's how you can keep track of me. So um, yeah, I hope you guys can get engaged with World Relief and with me and, um, and just um, get involved with some of the things that we're doing. It's a critical time for the church to really um, be speaking up and actually taking actions and supporting the very people that God calls us to care about. So, Absolutely. Um, so get engaged. Absolutely. Um, well, that just about rounds out the episode. Um, again, thank you so much, Jenny. I know you have a million things to be doing right now, especially having a one-year-old. I don't know how you saved the world and have a one-year-old at the same time. Um, but, balance. <laughs> but I just wanted to thank you so much for uh, being on our podcast and just taking us out the time to talk about uh, these things. Um, for Revelator, uh, we are on Twitter as well. Uh, you can follow us, Rev underscore, uh, underscore pod, Rev underscore pod, capital R, capital P, uh, and Twitter, and Facebook, Revelators Podcast, um, and SoundCloud, Revelators Podcast. Uh, we will have many, many more guests um, coming up as well. And so this is just the beginning. Uh, but again, thank you so much, Jenny, for being on the episode. Great. Thank you so much. All righty. Uh, and that's the end of our episode. Uh, see you guys later. Bye-bye.